Turn with me, please, to our scripture reading. That is the the text for the sermon. It is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is the word of God. Listen to it reverently and carefully as I read it to you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of uh, joints and marrow, of joints and marrow and of both soul and spirit. We thank you that, Lord, you use your word to uh, feed your people spiritually. Your word read and your word preached. We thank you, Lord, for the promises that attend uh, the preaching of your word uh, by a lawfully ordained man of God. And we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, uh, speak through the preaching when it is uh, in accordance with what your scripture scriptures teach. We ask that you would speak to us afresh this morning, that you would meet us at our point of need. Uh, and there are different needs uh, amongst us. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would um, help us, that you would strengthen us, encourage us, that you would bless us, and that you would also honor yourself through this time and our listening. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, what are some things that worry you? We all worry about things. Adults worry about different things than children worry about. Um, We worry about things like money and uh, jobs and the like, but children worry too. There are different things, though, that children worry about. What are some things that you worry about or tend to worry about? Uh, Maybe about... uh, If your parents go away or your mom or your dad go away on a trip, perhaps you worry about your dad or your mom coming home safely. Um, Perhaps you worry about uh, other things, uh, about relating to friends and uh, relationships that are in your life with friends. Perhaps there are other things 
Perhaps you worry about your uh, pets, their health, perhaps, or your parents and their health, or your own health. There are different things that you might worry about. We all have such things. But you know what? The scriptures, and in this place that we're looking at in particular today, in Philippians, in the scriptures, God tells us that we must not worry. It's actually a command that we're going to look at here in just a moment. We are commanded, even though there are situations that make it easy to worry and to be anxious and to fret, God says you must not ever worry. That's not easy. In fact, it's impossible to obey that command unless God gives you the grace to do it. That's true of adults, and that's true of you children as well. But nonetheless, the command is given here uh, that we are to not worry even when there are situations that are difficult, where it would be easy to worry. So listen, as as we work our way through this text, uh, for God's exhortation to you as well as you adults. The situation in which Paul finds himself as he writes this particular epistle of Philippians is, and most of you know this already, he is in prison. This is one of the prison epistles. He is almost certainly in Rome, uh, and he is writing uh, in the year 62 A.D. That's 11 years after his first trip to Philippi and encounter with the Philippian people. Christians there, who weren't Christians when he first came. He was the one who um, preached uh, to them. And many were converted under his preaching. Anyway, Paul is in prison, and he is evidently, at this point in time, awaiting the verdict of the imperial court. We learn this from chapter 2, verses 20 to 26. We won't turn there now. But uh, he is awaiting uh, a, a verdict. And his life is almost certainly at stake at this particular point. So that's the background. That's what Paul is, the situation that Paul finds himself in, and I'll reference that again in a little bit. But in our text that we're looking at this morning, Paul makes an assertion kind of in the middle, uh, seemingly randomly, although it's not at all random, but in the middle of this little section that I read to you, verses 4 through 7, he says at the end of verse 5, Right after saying, let your forbearing, forbearing spirit be known to all men, he says, the Lord is near. Seemingly out of the blue. But again, it's not out of the blue. There are two possible meanings of the phrase, the Lord is near. The first is, a, if we can call it, call it a spatial understanding of the, uh, the expression. And that is to say that the Lord is near at hand. He is in the vicinity, if you will, of us. Uh, which is to say, he is present in his person, near us, indeed within us, if we are Christians. That's one understanding of the phrase, the Lord is near. A second understanding, or the second understanding, is a, has, uh, is a temporal understanding of the expression. That is to say, the Lord is near in terms of time. The Lord here being the Lord Jesus. And he is near in terms of time. What Paul is doing by saying that is that Jesus could return at any moment. 
And both of these understandings of the expression, the Lord is near, are theologically correct and biblically correct. And it is probably unnecessary to choose between the two of them. Probably both apply uh, to this uh, pericope, this preaching passage, and have uh, implications for this preaching passage and these commands that we find here. The function of the phrase, the Lord is near, in this uh, section, verses 4 through 7, is almost certainly to provide the incentive to Paul's readers that is needed to obey the surrounding exhortations that he gives that we're going to be looking at. To provide an incentive to them, a motivation for them to obey these commands. And of course, this passage is providing the very same incentives to you and me to obey these commands. Well, let's look at the uh, review uh, at the front end here, the four uh, commands that we're going to be looking at from this passage four points. The first point is this. Because the Lord Jesus is near, you need to rejoice in the midst of your difficulties. Secondly, because the Lord Jesus is near, you need to display a gentle, forbearing spirit in the midst of your difficulties. Thirdly, because the Lord is near, you need to refrain from being anxious in the midst of your difficulties. And finally, because the Lord Jesus is near, you need to be in prayer in the midst of your difficulties. Let's take these one at a time. First of all, because the Lord Jesus is near, you need to rejoice in the midst of troubling Uh, circumstances that you may be facing, that most of us are facing, actually, right now due to the pandemic. This is obviously coming from verse 4 itself. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Notice he says we are to do this. We are to be filled with joy uh, at all times, without exception. He even repeats himself. says it twice, commands it twice. Rejoice, uh, so that there will be no mistaking how important this is to his readers, to you and to me as well. There is never a time when we as Christians should not be rejoicing. Never. Now you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, that's unreasonable. That's an unreasonable expectation on God's part to to tell me that um, I have to rejoice always. Really? Always? Yes, really. Always. Even in the midst of memory of past sins that vex us when they come to our mind? Yes. Even when we or someone we love is suffering from some malady or some trial or Uh, sadness, yes. Even when life itself hangs in the balance, yes. Because remember from whom this exhortation is coming. It's coming from the Apostle Paul, who, as we learn in verse 3, verse 6, remembered and thought about his past sins and even wrote about them 
in, in verse 6 of chapter 3 where he spoke of his, the fact that he was a persecutor of the church prior to his conversion. He, he gleefully um, participated in the abuse of Christians and even indirectly in the murder of Christians when he was unconverted. Uh, great wickedness. And he brings it to mind here. And he remembers it even as he's writing to the Philippians. So he remembered his sins and undoubtedly grieved over them. He was the one whose dear friends at Philippi were suffering, as we read in chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. I won't bother turning there now, but you can do that later. The Philippians were suffering. And Paul himself is imprisoned, as he writes, and is facing the prospect of uh, death, capital punishment as a possible outcome of his trial. So the one who is writing rejoice always, and again I will say rejoice, is one who understands that trials, tribulations, difficulties, sorrows, are no excuse for not rejoicing. You and I can and should be experiencing, even in the midst of, Joy, I'll explain that here in a minute, even in the midst of otherwise sad, frightening, or anxiety-producing circumstances. He's commanding us to rejoice. One of the reasons that you can uh, have such joy is that that joy of which Paul is speaking here is found in the Lord. Notice, rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. That is to say, the joy that Paul is speaking of comes from the intimate fellowship that you and I have with Jesus as Christians. He is our friend. He is our elder brother in the faith, as it were. And he is to be the object of our attention and which will in turn produce great joy in our hearts. And we are commanded to seek that joy in him. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Again, a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. You are to do that if you are a Christian. Psalm 94, verse 19 says, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations or comforts delight my soul. See, he's speaking there. The psalmist is in the context of anxiety, in the context of uh, issues and circumstances that, that produce anxiety. But he says, I can have delight in the Lord through his consolations, the comforts that he brings to me as I look to him for them and focus on his goodness and his love for me. Matthew Henry says, There is enough in God to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst circumstances on earth. Let me say that again. There is enough in God to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst circumstances on earth. Matthew Henry. 
He's right. He's right. And that includes for the Christian languishing in a North Korean prison cell. It's probable that we are heading into a severe economic downturn. Some even use the word depression to describe what we may be facing here in short order. You may lose your job. You may see your income decline precipitously. Your savings evaporate. All possible. Some of us could get the virus, become sick, very sick, and even die. Possible. Still, we can and should have the kind of joy in the Lord about which Paul writes here and commands us to have, or God through him commands us to have. And that we will only have that kind of joy by the grace of God as we seek for that grace from God. And the only ones who can get that grace from God to find joy in the midst of uh, disturbing and trying circumstances are those who have Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you're listening to me and you do not know Jesus savingly, and I'm not talking here about people just because you walked an aisle when you were a younger person, just because you are a member in good standing of some church here in town or outside of town, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. It doesn't even mean you're a Christian if your church and everybody in your church thinks you're a Christian. Because the Bible regularly speaks of the fact that there are hypocrites in the church. People who are pretending uh, to others around them and perhaps even fooling themselves into thinking they're Christians. But they're not. You might be one of those people. I don't know. The only people that are right with God, that have been forgiven of their sins, that have been reconciled to him and that are going to heaven are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, who is 100% God and is 100% man and is the only mediator between God and man and only those who are trusting in him alone to save them, nothing else, are forgiven by God and right with God and have access to God's grace in times of trial. Are you a Christian? Are you a genuine Christian? Or are you somebody who thinks that you're getting into heaven because you're a pretty good person? Better than the person down the street. Because you see, if you think that, you're not. You're on the road to hell. You need Christ. You need to cling to Jesus by faith. If you have not done that, do that now before you leave this earth. By the way, another reason uh, that you can have this joy of which Paul speaks in verse 4 is not just because uh, that joy is found in the Lord, but also, and I mentioned this in the, uh, the heading of the main point, because Jesus is near. You can have joy because Jesus is close at hand to you. In fact, he is within you in the person of the Spirit. You say, wait, the Spirit is another person. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who's within me, right? Uh, Jesus is not. Jesus is enthroned in heaven, which is true. Jesus is enthroned in heaven. 
in heaven. But where any of the persons are, there also are the other two persons. It's the doctrine called the doctrine of perichoresis. Don't worry about that. But it just means that each of the persons of the Godhead interpenetrates the other two persons in such a way that where one person is, the other three are also. And so Christ is with you, even though it's the Holy Spirit who the Scripture says indwells you. Most of the time it refers to the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But Christ is with you, and the Father is with you, near to you. And also he is near to you, Christ is, in that, in, in terms of time. You will soon be with Jesus if you're a Christian, and only if you're a Christian. You will soon be with him, one way or the other, either by his returning uh, in glory or by you leaving this earth. But both of these are reasons why you can have joy. Secondly, because the Lord Jesus is near, not only do you need to rejoice in the midst of your difficulties, but you need to display a gentle and forbearing spirit in the midst of your difficulties. Verse 5 makes this point. The Greek word that Paul uses here, that the New American Standard translators describe or translate as forbearing spirit, uh, That Greek word carries with it the idea of gentleness, of kindness, and humility in dealings with others and with our circumstances. That we are gentle and kind and humble. It also carries with it the idea of patient tolerance or forbearance and a lack of complaining in the midst of suffering and provocation. It also carries with it that idea as well. Thus the translation forbearing. But it's a gentle forbearing or a kind forbearing that probably more fully um, explains or a humble forbearing uh, the idea of the Greek term that Paul uses. And this virtue of gentle forbearing is one that Paul says everyone you spend an appreciable amount of time with should observe in you. Anybody who knows you halfway decently should observe this quality in you. He says, um, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Let it be known, and it will be. The, impression, the idea is that it will be known to all men if you're a Christian uh, obeying this commandment. Others around you, both Christian and non, should see you treating that person and others as well, they should see you treating um, them, them and others with gentleness, with kindness, even under pressure. You may be under serious pressure in the next several weeks and months. Many of us probably will be under serious pressure due to the circumstances that we're in. There is no excuse for the Christian to be rude or to lash out at others around him or her, regardless of the pressure that we're under. We are to have at all times a gentle, forbearing, non-complaining spirit that we exhibit as we deal with the trials of this life. 
people should also observe uh, in you uh, that uh, a patient tolerance of uh, people that are otherwise less than pleasant to be around uh, and situations that are otherwise less than pleasant to be in and might be even downright miserable. People should be able to see in us something different in the way that we handle the struggles that come our way and the people that um, are difficult in our lives. And they should see that if they get an opportunity to observe us interacting with others or in uh, difficult situations, being patient and uh, tolerant of the circumstances and non-complaining in our approach, not grumbling even if we... uh, would seem to have every reason to do so. The only way you are going to have such a gentle, forbearing, non-complaintive spirit is by the grace of God. It's the only way. And you can only have that, as I said before, if you are a true Christian. But if you are, turn to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Help me to... to, to Act as a Christian should act in the midst of my trials. And he will help you. He will answer that prayer in the affirmative. Your incentive, my incentive, for displaying a gentle, forbearing spirit in the midst of our difficulties is, again, because Jesus is near. Jesus is near to you. He's personally present with you through his spirit. And he is observing, because he is present, the omnipresent God uh, that he is, he is observing how you deal with the challenges that you are facing. We need to be mindful of that. That even if nobody else is watching, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are watching. And that can help motivate us to to, um, act in a proper Christian manner even when it's challenging to do so, because Jesus is personally present with us. And also, um, knowing that there are no events left in redemptive history that need to be fulfilled before Jesus returns, that's part of the nearness of Jesus, temporally speaking, by knowing that there are there's nothing left to be fulfilled in redemptive history before he returns, that means he's coming soon. He's near. And when he does come, and it could be soon, when he does come, he will deliver you from your trials and will graciously reward you for your efforts to be gentle and forbearing under pressure and in the midst of troubling circumstances. You will be rewarded. And it will be gracious reward. It's not meritorious reward. Uh, rewards that are given, that the Bible speak of, are given graciously. But they are given when we strive to obey and honor the Lord uh, in various ways like the one I'm talking about. Thirdly, because the Lord Jesus is near to you, you need to refrain from being anxious in the midst of your difficulties. You need to refrain from being anxious. We are not to be anxious. The language that Paul uses here indicates that his readers uh, were uh, were tempted to be or were, in fact, apprehensive about stuff in their lives that they were facing, challenges. 
Perhaps they were anxious about uh, hostility they were receiving from their pagan neighbors. Uh, Perhaps they were being threatened with uh, persecution, with having their goods or their uh, possessions confiscated by the authorities. We don't know exactly. But the fact is there there were things that were tempting them to be anxious. But we also today have things that tempt us to be anxious, right? They may be different from our first century brethren, but we struggle with things. We are, um, we have weights, if you will, uh, in our lives, things that we uh, tend to fret about, finances, our, our work, our health, our family well-being, uh, our futures. These are all things that we worry about uh, and may be worrying about right now, some of us. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, commands the Philippians and you and me, to stop being anxious. Paul is probably echoing here the words of Christ himself over in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says in verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 6, this, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life, as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Yes, we are not to be anxious for this life and the things of this life. And we are not to worry, Paul indicates here, about anything whatsoever. Be anxious for nothing, he says. And he's telling his Philippians readers to be anxious for nothing. It sometimes helps to think about some of the very real threats that believers uh, in ancient times had to contend with in their lives that the Philippians would have had to contend with 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this. They had to contend with things like persecution, hostile governments and leaders, the possibility of being imprisoned, disease that we don't have to even think about. They had many more diseases that they were susceptible to. Plagues, famine, dying of starvation, we have food, ample food, even, even in this situation that we're in here. That was not true of so many believers. They left, lived from day to day. And that was a very common thing. And yet Paul says to people like that, who face those kinds of possibilities in their lives, he's saying, don't be anxious. Not about any of that stuff. Don't be anxious. And God, of course, uh, is saying the same thing. It's telling you and me that we are to not be anxious even if you lose your job because of the tanking economy, even if the value of your retirement account is cut in half, even if there are no disinfectant wipes to be had in East Texas. Don't worry. 
Even now. Why mustn't you worry about such things? Again, because Jesus is near to you. He who loved you so much that he endured God's infinite wrath in your place, if you're a Christian, to pay the penalty for your sins, that Savior is powerfully present with you at all times. And that's a motivation for not being anxious. Your God is with you. He's also temporally near to you and me. When he returns, he'll remove all causes of your anxiety, the things that cause you or tempt you to be anxious now. They'll all be gone. All be gone. Finally, because the Lord Jesus is near, not only must you not... um, Do you need to rejoice in the midst of your difficulties? Do you need to display a gentle, forbearing spirit in the midst of your difficulties and refrain from being anxious in the midst of your difficulties? But because the Lord is near, you need to be in prayer in the midst of your difficulties. Whenever your spirit is troubled on account of some trial you are facing, you and I should pour out our hearts to the Lord. We should come before him with those anxieties. Peter says, casting all your anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares for you. That's the reason why you and I, who are Christians, can cast our anxieties upon him in prayer, because he cares for us. He loves us. As a father, he wants to, as it were, take our burden uh, and bear it himself, so that we don't have to bear it. But we have to come to him. And tell him of our circumstances. Prayer is merely talking to God in conscious dependence upon Christ and his atoning work to make our prayers heard by or acceptable to God and therefore heard by him. That's all prayer is. And we are to use that tool, that means of grace that God has given to us. We have ready access to his ear. All we need to do is come before him in prayer and say, Lord, and start talking, trusting in Jesus uh, for that conversation to be heard by him. And it will be if you're a Christian, but only if you're a Christian. What are some promises that are respect uh, that respect prayer in the scriptures? There are a number of them. Many of you know them. There is the one from Matthew 7. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Over in uh, John, John's Gospel, John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, we read this. And in that day, Jesus speaking here, and in that day you will ask me no question. 
And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. So we are to ask him. We are to ask in Jesus' name. There we are, that dependence upon Jesus for access to God's listening ear. We need to approach him in Christ's name. Uh, We need to approach him in faith. Over in Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, Jesus says, And all things you ask in prayer believing, you shall receive. We are to pray expectantly, uh, knowing that God has the power to answer our prayers with a yes, although he may answer it with a no. Uh, but believing that he can, and often, as, especially as we are praying uh, in accordance uh, with what we believe to be his will, he, he regularly does answer with a yes, our prayers. But the point is we need to be trusting uh, and expectant as we pray. And then finally, the uh, final thing that needs to be uh, uh, mentioned is in First. John chapter 5, verse 14, we read that qualifier where John says this, and this is the confidence which we have before him, John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So we do need to pray uh, in accordance with his will that we know is his will, his revealed will, in accordance with the scriptures. We can't pray for things that are unscriptural or uh, that we know from the scriptures are, un- are contrary to God's will for us. But So they need to be in accordance with what scripture teaches, and we need to uh, pray as, for God's decretive will as well. Now, we don't know what that is. Uh, we can only guess what that is. Uh, actually, we can't even guess. But uh, if he says no to our prayers, which he sometimes does, that means it wasn't in accordance with his ultimate will, uh, what we were asking for. But nonetheless, when he uh, answers that way, it is uh, graciously. It is uh, um, for our good and for his glory. So, everything. Uh, We are to pray, uh, back to our text, we are to pray for... um, Everything related to the source of our anxiety. Remember, the context is anxiety. He uh, says in verse 4 there, excuse me, verse 6, be anxious for, none, for nothing, but, uh, on the other hand, uh, rather than being anxious in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he says we are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything we are to pray with respect to the, the source of our anxiety or the circumstances surrounding our temptation to be anxious. You and I can and should pray about the circumstances that are troubling us, whatever they might be. If you're troubled, you should pray. doesn't matter what it is. It's troubling you. Go to the Lord, is what Paul is saying. No problem is too small to bring before him. And no problem certainly is too great to bring before him. Now, you and I can uh, pray that God would deliver us from our troubles. 
that he would take them away, that he would remove them. That's okay. But you and I should always conclude any such prayer for deliverance from our troubles the way Jesus concluded his prayer to his Father for deliverance from the agony of the cross. You recall what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane after he said, uh, asked that it be taken from him. He said, yet, Father, not my will, but thine be done. That is how we should uh, couch our requests for things, anything really, but particularly if we're asking him to change our circumstances to remove the, the thing that's troubling us, the pain that we're experiencing or the frustrations that we are experiencing. We need to remember that there are times when God may not wish to remove our woes from us just yet. Remember he said no to Paul when Paul asked him three times to deliver him from that physical affliction that Paul had. We read of that over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I believe it is. So he said no to the apostle. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness, Paul paraphrasing a little bit uh, that passage. So there are times when God wishes to bring us through uh, difficulty and not take it from us. But you can be assured from Scripture, you can be assured that if God wants you to experience some hardship, if God intends to bring you through some sorrows and some difficulties that you would prefer to avoid, God is doing it for your good because he loves you. He's a loving father who loves his child. He loves you if you're his child, if you were a Christian. And therefore, he wants your good and has the power to bring about your good. And he also does what he does always for his glory as well. So, we are to pray about everything related to um, that which is troubling us. And when we do that, when we do that, we are to do it with thanksgiving, we read in verse 6. Gratitude, you see, is an integral part of the Christian life. Paul says over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, in other words, whatever you do in life, your whole life, you are to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, in other words, for his glory and his sake and for his honor, and you're to do that by giving th- and give thanks as you do that. That's what we... It's our, um, our job description as Christians. We are to be thankful people. Thanks is to characterize the way we um, operate, the way we think, the way we speak. By thanking God for your circumstances, you are igno- even, even though they're difficult, you are acknowledging that, first of all, that he's responsible for them. Your circumstances aren't there and God's wishes they weren't. No, God has actually brought them to you and me. He brought on this pandemic. And with the, to each one of us, the troubles that that brings to our, uh, to our lives. 
And when you thank God, you're acknowledging, God, I know you're in control of all this. That glorifies God. Secondly, by thanking God, you are also acknowledging his wisdom in bringing this circumstance that's troubling you or that's difficult for you to you. God is wise. This is a wise thing that God has done, even though I don't understand what's going on. And also you're acknowledging, Lord, I know that you're going to bring good out of this. I thank you in advance because I know you're going to bring good out of this to me, perhaps others around me. You're certainly going to bring glory to yourself. And we can be thankful because of that. And God is honored when we thank him in the midst of pressing circumstances. And what will be the result if we heed this exhortation to pray um, uh, to the Lord uh, in everything uh, with thanksgiving? Verse 7 is the result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to note something here. That uh, this promise of God's peace, or the peace of God, guarding the believer's heart, it is given irrespective of whether or not God says yes to your request. Even if he says no, you can still have the peace of God and should have the peace of God, even if he says no to your request. Uh, An affirmative answer to the request is not uh, a condition of the peace, in other words. What is this peace? Well, it probably refers, uh, first of all, to the objective peace and serenity that God possesses in himself. God is... um, Serene at all times, if I can put it that way. That's a, that is an attribute of God, uh, that he is all is well with God, if I can put it that way, in his person. He is serenely um, extant. And that probably is part of what Paul means by the peace of God. But also, certainly, that peace of God refers to the subjective inward peace that God gives to his children in the midst of um, upsetting or potentially upsetting situations. A serenity of the soul, in other words, uh, that is more wonderful than we can imagine prior to having that peace. That's Paul's point when he says that it surpasses all understanding or all comprehension. It's something that is, is um, it's, it's almost too wonderful to imagine the kind of peace or the effect of that peace that God gives uh, to his children when he gives it. And it is a serenity or a peace that you and I can have, again, in the midst of circumstances that would otherwise cause us to worry and fret and be anxious. And that peace shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are told here. It is a peace, it is a serenity, it is a sense of well-being that comes from knowing down deep inside of us, first of all, that the good God who loves us with an unfathomable love is in charge of the situation we're in and has brought it to us. Secondly, that serenity comes from knowing that Jesus is close at hand 
that he will never leave us or forsake us, and he is personally present with us in the midst of what we're going through. And then finally, he is close at hand in that he will come for us soon, we who are his children. And when he does, we will experience an even more unimaginable peace and joy and sense of well-being than we can ever hope for even in this world as Christians, which is a marvelous peace that we can enjoy now, but heaven is going to be even better. And the Lord is coming for you and me, and he's going to take us home. The effects of the curse, including anxiety and sorrow, all going to be gone. And that's going to happen soon. Christ is near. All is well. Praise the Lord. Join me in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this passage that encourages us, Lord, in the midst of uh, troubling times. We thank you that you have given us these words through your servant, the Apostle Paul, and that they are your words, ultimately. And they are commands, Lord. Um, They're not suggestions, they are commands. And Lord, we cannot fulfill these commands. We cannot rejoice in the midst of difficulty. We cannot um, find uh, our freedom from anxiety in the midst of difficulty. We cannot have gentle, forbearing spirits and pray uh, expectantly in the midst of difficulties unless you give the grace that is needed. Would you please give us the grace that we need to face our challenges in a God-glorifying manner and in a manner that will cause others around us, especially unbelievers, to take note and go, Why is he so different? Why is she like that? And ultimately be drawn to the Savior that has forgiven us. If there is anyone out there, Lord, uh, listening today that doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, savingly, would you please open his or her eyes to their need of Christ? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.